Hi, everybody. It's Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. In early January, U.S. Senator Roy Blunt will depart from his post after close to five decades in public or educational service. His legacy in politics and policy is substantial. And earlier this week, we talked about the big takeaways from his time in elected office, as well as some of his more difficult challenges he's encountered. Here's my conversation with U.S. Senator Roy Blunt. So I watched your entire farewell speech in the Senate where you talked often about how working in a bipartisan way was very beneficial to your federal legislative service. I'd like you to provide some tangible examples of how you made a difference for Missouri while reaching out your hand to your ideological counterparts. Well, I I think that um, not only is it the way to get things done in the Senate because of the Senate rules, but I think it's one of the better things the Senate rules are likely to encourage is reaching out to somebody on the other side. You're you're much more likely, Jason, to have a a product that will last than if it's something one side forces on the other side. And then two years later, somebody else is control and in control. And they think we've got to get we've got to change that thing that. Uh, was totally partisan when it passed to start with. You know, the um, efforts in uh, mental health, I think the Senator Stabenow and I've worked so hard on for over, for right at a decade now, uh, would be significant things. Missouri not only got to be one of the eight original states, uh, and not, not because of me, but because we created legislation that you could compete in to be the pilot states to see what it would look like if you treated mental health like all other health in a broad-based network. Uh, And uh, 23 states applied, 19 states went through that process. Uh, But Missouri was one of the eight states that got those original grants. And obviously that wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been a program for them to apply for, but they got it based on their own merit. Michigan really didn't get to be one of the eight states. And later we were able to add the next two in the calculation that Health and Human Services made as to who would would be the best places to to do this, who had the highest uh, level of quality on all of the things you had to have to be one of those centers. Uh, Obviously, NIH, our NIH work, uh, uh, Washington University is, I think, the fourth uh, biggest recipient of NIH healthcare grants, but Uh, The University of Missouri at Columbia has made a huge commitment there uh, to be part of that kind of work, looking at what happens now that in this next generation of healthcare, we understand that uh, every one of us is different than all of the rest of us. uh, And how do we use that uh, to create the unique things that work uh, in one case that get your ability to resist disease up higher than would be otherwise um, moving, uh, this was not as bipartisan as was by state, but the, the four senators, particularly from uh, Kansas and Missouri, decided when the federal government decided they were going to move the ag research jobs principally out of um, Washington and somewhere else in the country, um, there were a number of, uh, number of good cases to be made, but I think Missourians made the best one. And we had 573 research and analytics jobs in Kansas City, Missouri, that will have long-term impact on not only that nice boost to the economy, but also the potential of 
where some of that ag research is going to be first tried and first done. Um, I think there's a pretty long list here and infrastructure would be uh, part of that, but all great partners, you know, the Missouri uh, delegation house and Senate has worked very closely together uh, certainly for at least the last decade. And I think pretty closely together for the last 20 years. Uh, and uh, that's all made a difference. We usually were able to have a unified approach uh, to anything that was going to impact our state specifically. Yeah, you actually touched on another question I was going to ask later, but since you're you're a good segueer, um, I noticed that you and Senator McCaskill were able to forge a pretty good working relationship with each other, even though she ran against your son for governor and her mom ran against your dad for state representative. And Missouri is notorious for having longstanding political grudges. How were you two able to work together with that context? Well, we, we were able to work together. And uh, now, and, and I think in fairness, uh, even in, in our own campaigns, we were more involved, I think, than might have been as healthy as it could have been uh, for, for the opponent of somebody we're working with. But we, we've always had a good relationship. And frankly, we've always had we've fostered that with a with a with a good uh, personal relationship as well. You know, when um, when uh, my dad died, uh, Joe and uh, uh, and Claire were at the memorial service. When Claire's mom died, I never thought about anything but being there. And we've spent personal time together as well. And that helps. And, you know, one of the things I think that's um, not very well understood about working with people effectively is you don't spend a lot of time on the things that you know you're never going to agree on. Uh, and uh, in, as I said, and you heard the speech the other day, the farewell speech, the key to working with somebody, particularly in the Senate, is you don't have to agree with them on everything. You just have to agree with them on that one thing you're working together. And Sarah McCaskill and I were always able to find a number of things that uh, we were working hard on that we thought were going to be good for our state. Um, and we were able to do that. So what happens, though, when you are dealing with something in Congress that is centered around like a deeply held philosophical or moral belief, like abortion rights, military interventionalism, the right to bear arms, racial equity, where people around those issues feel there is no such thing as a bipartisan approach losing on that side to them would be basically betraying their values? Well, I think, you know, by the time you've done whatever you, you've done to get to the United States Senate, and normally that has been some kind of political career with a long attachment and uh, issues, uh, feeling strongly about issues, seeing your, your views uh, develop about issues to where by the time you get here, you're pretty much where you're going to be on the kind of issues you mentioned. And I just think it doesn't do much good to assume for a minute that you're gonna change somebody's mind on something like that. So the way you'd move forward on something like that would be that uh, the, the, the majority of people that would be for that has to change. Uh, I think it's a much more daily application when you say, let's work on this one part of the immigration issue that we agree on. Let's not talk about the part we don't agree on because this is the one thing we both agree we need to try to do and try to do our best right now to, to change. Though immigration may not be the best example of that because it always gets bogged down 
in some comprehensive package that never goes anywhere. I think that's been our biggest single mistake with immigration. So they're probably a better example of just anything. Uh, the the um, Senator Coons from Delaware and I always work together to extend the Victims of Child Abuse Act, which obviously, which interestingly rather, they have a couple of times in the uh, Obama administration, they zeroed the Victims of Child Abuse Act out, the funding for that. And, um, you know, we don't have to talk about all the things we don't agree on. All we have to talk about to get that done is that we do agree on that. It does seem for all the talk about how people want Democrats and Republicans to work together, for people who are like heavily engaged in politics, and I'm talking about voters here, they often put a value on ideological purity over compromise. How has that affected the way Congress operates in the roughly 26 years you've been either in the House or the Senate? Um, I, I think it's um, had a big effect. It really it seemed to be about 2009. Way too many people um, seem to seem to keep saying in their campaigns, if I don't get exactly what I want, I won't settle for anything else, which seems to me to be the best possible way to take yourself out of almost every discussion. Because almost nobody ever wants to sign up and say, I want to help you get exactly what you want, even if it's not what I want. That is just, there's not a big group for that. And I think those people have become incredibly ineffective as legislators. Maybe they're incredibly effective as, as uh, spokespersons for a point of view. And if that's why you're running for the job, uh, I suppose there's part of the job that can... Uh, be benefited by that. But I think you've got to you've got to be willing to understand that democracy doesn't work that way, that uh, when people uh, are stepping up to be part of a democracy, the goal there is to see how far you can move the country in the direction you'd like it to go with the other people that have been chosen to come and help make this decision talked to a couple of uh, candidates this year, said, what advice do you have for me as I haven't run for office or I haven't run for Congress before? Uh, and my advice was, uh, if I was you, I'd first decide the kind of member of the Congress you want to be, what you want to, how, how you see yourself making the best impact here. And then don't say a lot of things in the campaign that prevent you from being that kind of member of either the House or the Senate. What was the toughest challenge of your political career? I think maybe the some of the moments that were tough for the country, and I was in a place where I could be involved. 9-11, uh, certainly, uh, certainly a challenge. I got uh, very involved in trying to figure out uh, how we deal with the liability issue for uh, the whole travel industry, um, then how we allocate uh, the money that had been set aside to try to compensate victims. Um, Senator uh, Congressman Gephardt and I worked together on that. Uh, and that model was good enough that it's been used in three or four other victim compensation decisions. Uh, Ken Feinberg, I think, was the person who 
One was the, chosen to do it in after 9-11 and has replicated that effort now several times. The continuity of government, what, how, do we, how do we deal with on, on a go, going forward basis the possibility that a, a big portion of our government that we never anticipated before that could just be, uh, in, be eliminated uh, how do we, how do we respond to that? Clearly, the the two uh, inaugurations that I was in charge of, uh, very different individuals were being inaugurated, uh, very different circumstances. The Trump inauguration, dealing with all of the issues that surround someone whose team has never really been involved in this process in any way before, and um, two hundred twenty two hundred forty thousand people came through the security system process uh, in that inauguration four years later because of covid uh working with the team that had been at every inauguration for 50 years uh we decided we want to have this outside it needs to be in a place where the world will see us having the transition of power that they're used to seeing in america but only 1900 people uh came to that inauguration in 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 that that inauguration and in dealing with all the things you deal with there but understanding the importance of the peaceful transition of power understanding that our system isn't perfect so sorry i set the theme for one was the first one was the peaceful transition of power the other was a more perfect union you know and the point is that uh, the founders didn't promise a perfect union they promised in the constitution a goal was a more perfect union and we are constantly trying to be more than we have been and are less than we hope to be. You are one of the few people in Congress with extensive experience as a local and statewide election official. In fact, before doing this interview, I listened to your excellent discussion with Brianna Lennon and Eric Fay about your time as Secretary of State and Green County Clerk, which I, by, by the way, I highly recommend people listen to that. Um, but I think it I think it's pretty clear now there are a lot of people in in Missouri in particular, especially Republicans that do not have the faith in the results of elections that maybe they did before Trump was in office. What do you think leaders need to do to ameliorate that or make people confident in their elections again? Well, I always thought it was an important part of the job that people believe that what that the election results accurately reflected what people tried to do election day, and that uh, the county clerk uh, in, in bigger counties than Springfield, Missouri, where I was the county election official, uh, that, um, that that's that's an important part of what you're doing as, as you prepare people for the election, as you talk about the election. As you give plenty of notice when things are going to be different or things are you, you believe things are improving, why you think they're improving, uh, that's important. I, I and then you know to be the Secretary of State also, I thought it was really important to 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 do that, um, and it continues to be an important part of the of the job. Uh, I think one of the big challenges in the country right now is we let people vote earlier and earlier and not on just on election day where it's pretty easy to have a system that produces a quick result. 
these election officials need to be thinking about what do they need to do to change their system uh, so that the result comes quicker. If you're going to let people vote, you know, six weeks before the election, maybe I'll have a, have a deadline that really matters as to when that vote has to be in. And, you know, what Missouri does, what Florida did with lots of absentee and mail-in voting is they have a system that allows them to be ready to count all those ballots on election day and announce it that night. Um, the longer you drag out the result, and particularly when the result, the apparent result seems to change over that three-day or three-week process, uh, you, you all you do is... Uh, encourage people to further question why you can't do a more efficient job and a more accurate job of letting them know what happened on the day that is supposed to be election day. So your departure from the electoral scene, by the way, I did not know before listening to that podcast that you have been in elected office since you were 23 years old with maybe yeah. that four-year break in the 90s as the only time you were not in elected office. Is that, yeah, is that, I, was, I was a university president during those four years, so that was my most political period. <laughs> but it seems like people like you, Kit Bon, John Ashcroft, John Danforth, you all kind of came of age in a time when Missouri Democrats were still a force in Missouri. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why you had to take a bipartisan approach on things when they controlled the legislature, they controlled other statewide offices. Now you have Republicans who are ascending to high statewide and federal offices who have been in the majority their entire times. Your your successor, Senator Schmidt, has never been in the minority before, and he will after January. Do you think that that's kind of a not good thing? And it, they may be approaching politics in a different way than people like you. Well, the you know, the only real experience I have would be in our state. There have been there have been lots of states that have been dominated by one party for a long time. Uh, we weren't very competitive for a long time. When I was elected Secretary of State, I was the first Republican to hold that job in 52 years. And it does impact how you explain to people why they should vote for you. You know, very much performance oriented, very much, I understand this job. I've done more of it than any other elected official in Missouri for the last 12 years as the county clerk and election authority in the biggest county where somebody had that responsibility. And then eventually, you know, they find out that you're a Republican, but it, 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 you need to have them pretty persuaded that you're you're a person that could do this job if you had a chance before uh, they the, the thing you wouldn't want to start with is, look, you've never elected a Republican to this job for 52 years. So just vote for me. I don't think it would have been very effective. And so our, our message was different. Uh, and I, And I think the communication of the job you did then in government was different as well, because rather than talking about some national position of your party and how it related to everything you did, you were talking about the job you did and how you were doing your best to make that job, uh, that, that job better. We only have one minute left, so I'm going to do a lightning round. And okay. what is your favorite Missouri State Park? might be Roaring River, where I started trout season as a secretary of state for several years. Uh, St. Genevieve is a state park we turned into a federal park while I was there, so it would be high on that list. Who is your favorite Missouri political figure who is not Harry S. Truman? 
Mm. I was going to go Truman once you started down that road. Um, favorite political person, not Harry S. Truman. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I'm not sure I've got a good answer on that. You should have answered Champ Clark, but I'll, I'll forgive you for that. Uh, I'm a Champ Clark mega fan for reasons I'm not going to explain. I read somewhere the other day that Champ Clark in, uh, I think it was 2000, I think it was 1915, the Democrats didn't have the majority, but they still elected, the Congress still elected him the speaker, which yeah. had to say something. Highly recommend his autobiography when you, you have some time. Who is your favorite athlete who played for a Missouri sports team? Stan Muschel. Which is a better place, Worth or Mercer County? Worth is smaller, Worth, Mercer is bigger. They're equally good. Yeah, I, I chose the two smallest Missouri counties. And my final question for you, what are you going to do next? I don't know, but I'm going to work. I like to work. I don't have enough hobbies uh, not to work. And uh, my wife tells me I definitely need to work. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I'm going to get serious about that on uh, January the 4th. Well, Senator, thank you so much for your time. And more importantly, thank you for your service to the state. Um, I say that I would say that if you were a Democrat, a Whig, a natural law party person, um, Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today talking about your legacy. Hey, Jason, thank you. I've, I've loved doing it. I'm grateful uh, to Missourians for giving me the opportunity at the county level, the state level, and the national level to work for them. For all of our stories and coverage about Missouri politics, be sure to go to our website at stlpr.org. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thank you for listening. <laughs>